Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, would you open with me to Mark chapter 3? That's where we're going to pick up again this morning. And I hope you were able to listen to last week's message. And we got to talk about this concept of how Jesus went about the ministry that he came to fulfill. And Jesus went big by going small. And last week we saw how Jesus focused in on a small group of disciples, and that that was a defining moment in his ministry. What we said last week is that what's going to characterize his entire ministry moving forward is his relationship with these 12 disciples that formed this small group where he invested himself uh, over the next several chapters of Mark that we're going to get to look at. And so what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is back with the crowds, But here's what we can keep in mind from this point forward is that unless something specifically says otherwise, those disciples are there with him. They are, he just appointed the 12, he went up on the mountain, he sought God in prayer, he appointed those 12 disciples to be in his small group with him, and then he came back down off that mountain and he's back with the crowds. And today we're going to talk about something that relates to all of us, albeit in different ways. But we're going to talk about this concept that's right here in the text of Mark 3, 20 through 35, about responding like Jesus. Now, some of you are very visual responders, you know, like I, 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 you know what I'm talking about, that something goes down and everyone can tell that you're upset. You know, you're that kind of a person. Some of you are more internalizers. And something goes down and no one else around you may even know. Some of you may even battle thoughts that spin around your head. Difficult things that you're battling. And maybe people around you know what you're battling. Maybe people around you don't know what you are battling. But here is what we all share in common as humans. We all share in common the fact that we are all going to be responding in various different ways to different challenging situations. And that's what's happening today in the story in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the story to you. And as we go through the story, there are three different groups of people that create opposition for Jesus. So I want you to look for those three different groups of people, and then we're going to talk about those groups of people a little bit more and specifically talk about the way that Jesus responded to these various groups of people and what we can learn from Jesus about how we should respond to other people, especially when they create some kind of challenge or opposition for us. So looking at the the text and beginning there, this is the main passage of scripture that the rest of the of our time in God's word this morning will be built on. So just let this sink into your heart as we read this passage. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. 
No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around the circle at those who sat around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, and my sister. And that's the word of the Lord, Mark 3, 20 through 35. So in Mark chapter 1, several weeks ago when we were in that passage, we saw that John the Baptist introduced Jesus of Nazareth to the Jews as their Messiah. He announced the arrival of the King, the arrival of the Lord of Lords. And in these stories, there are three different groups of people who do not believe in him. In other words, they don't believe the message of John the Baptist. They don't believe this announcement that's been made about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of Kings. These three different groups of people are his friends, his enemies, and his family. So we're going to look a little bit at these three different groups. First, the first group is Jesus' friends. The New King James Version of the Bible, which is what we just read, interprets the Greek word para as his own people. That's what it says in that text. The King James Version translates that word friends. We're not sure who these people were, but what we know is that they are people that Jesus knew from his past. The names of Jesus' friends are not mentioned. It's the only time in the New Testament that friends of Jesus are mentioned. And so this word friends literally means that they were just familiar with Jesus, that he had prior acquaintance with them. These could have been family from Nazareth or extended family. These could have been people he grew up with in Nazareth. But they had some kind of history with Jesus before this moment and before his public ministry began. These friends were convinced that Jesus was beside himself. In other words, they thought Jesus had lost his mind. And they felt that way for a few reasons. One, because of the claims that he was making. But another reason they felt that way is the risks he was taking and the fact that his tending to the multitudes was causing him to neglect even eating bread himself. That's what we read in the story. What, what's apparent is that they, are, uh, that they had not embraced what John the Baptist had said about Jesus or they... And that they hadn't concluded that he was the Messiah, or they would have never concluded that he had lost his mind if they had believed that. If they had believed Jesus was the Messiah, if they had believed the word that John the Baptist spoke about him, then they would have not concluded that Jesus was beside himself, that he was out of his mind. So his friends, this first group of people, did not believe in Jesus. Then we have a second group of people, and these are Jesus' enemies. Their specific names 
are not mentioned in this passage either, but they are called in the passage the scribes. The scribes were appointed by the Sanhedrin, and they were the scholars of what you and I know as the Old Testament, the scriptures. They had given their lives to the study and preservation of the law and the prophets. In their estimation, Jesus did not qualify to be the Messiah. They were the experts, they had looked at the scriptures, and they had concluded, in their own opinion, that Jesus could not be the Messiah. But because great multitudes of people were following Jesus, it created a problem for them, and they considered Jesus to be a threat. They could not deny that Jesus had power over demons. At this point, Jesus had uh, cast out many evil spirits, and they just couldn't deny it. It was happening right in front of them. So they came up with another conclusion. They concluded that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub, who is the lord of the demons, and that he was using the power of demons to cast out demons. That was their conclusion. You follow that? Jesus is using the power of demons to cast out demons. His enemies certainly did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The last group of people is Jesus' friends, or family, Jesus' family. The scripture never says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, every indication we have in the scripture is that she did believe from the very beginning, from the word of the angel that came to her, she did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. She obviously did. But it does say that Jesus had siblings, namely his brothers, who did not believe that he was the Messiah. Look at John 7, 5 right here on the screen. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3, name four men identified as the brothers of Jesus. We have James, Hosus, Simon, and Jude. These are four brothers named in the scripture, identified as the brothers of Jesus. Jesus also had at least two sisters, but their names are not mentioned in the scripture. So having grown up with Jesus, with this family, it would have been safe to assume that his brothers carried some contempt toward him, especially in fact of this scripture that they did not believe in him. Especially considering that Mary did believe in him. Familiarity can breed contempt. If you've ever been a sibling, you can probably relate to that statement. Some of these reasons are apparent. One is that they were from the tribe of Judah, the family was, and not from the tribe of Levi. They were carpenters by trade like their father. And so here's one of the questions the brothers could have been asking. Who appointed Jesus to be a rabbi? He's not from the tribe of Levi. He doesn't qualify, you know. And so they could have considered, well, no one appointed Jesus to be a rabbi. Well, we know that the father appointed Jesus to be the rabbi. But they could have felt some contempt because of that. And then Jesus was the oldest sibling in his family. And as the firstborn son, he was responsible for the care of their mother who was widowed. But Jesus had left the other siblings in Nazareth to care for his mother, Mary. And that, that could break some contempt, couldn't it? That could create some challenges. You know, hey, you're, you're responsible for taking care of mom, but here you are in the other area of Capernaum and you've left us here in Nazareth to take care of mom. But then the other side of that coin is Mary often went and she traveled to spend time with Jesus. That could have also bred some contempt because, hey, mom's never around because you keep stealing her away from us. Then one last challenge that Jesus' siblings could have easily faced with Jesus is that Jesus was making claims 
that he was the Jewish Messiah and fulfilling biblical prophecy. He was even making claims that he was the eternal son of God. And they did not believe in him. Those are some pretty serious claims for a person to be making if you don't believe the claims that they are making. Mary knew that it was true, but obviously his brothers did not buy it. Because if they would have bought it, they would have followed him and they would have believed in him. So because of their unbelief, it would have been natural for Jesus' brothers to feel contempt towards him or to even be embarrassed by him because of the things he was saying in front of such a large group of people. We know from John 7, 5 and from the observations that we just made about this time period that Jesus lived in with his siblings, that the members of Jesus' family did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we've identified three different groups of people right here that in one way or another created opposition for Jesus during his ministry just after he selected the 12 to follow him as his disciples. And they created opposition for Jesus because of their unbelief. Jesus told his disciples that he should expect people to oppose them because people opposed him. He said, if they're going to oppose me, you should expect that people are also going to oppose you. That what people did to him, his disciples should expect that others would also do to them. One of many examples that we have that this is true and that it happened in the life of Jesus' disciples and his followers is an example from Acts 26-24 of the Apostle Paul. And in this story, Paul had just given this great defense. I mean, God had given him the right words in the hour he needed it to stand before this governing leader and to present the gospel through his own testimony and to proclaim Christ to Festus, this leader, in this verse. And then the book of Acts records that Paul, had, he thus made his defense. Um, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. So just like these people created opposition for Jesus and accused him that way, Jesus said you should expect it. If you're going to follow me, other people are going to do the same thing to you. And that's certainly seen here in the life of Paul as one of many examples where that happened in the scriptures. So the disciples of Jesus were witnesses to how his friends, his enemies, and his family did not believe in Jesus. They also had a front row seat to how Jesus responded to each one of these groups. And they got to see what it looks like for perfect love, love incarnate, and the Son of God, God himself, to respond to these people who created opposition for him. So what did the disciples of Jesus learn from Jesus about how they should respond to other people, especially people who were creating opposition or challenges. Well, we can learn a lesson or we can see his response in each one of these three situations. And the first one is Jesus' friends. How did Jesus respond to his friends? Jesus ignored the unrighteous judgments of his friends. Of the three stories, it's the only one where there's no response from Jesus at all in the text. When Jesus' friends said that he was out of his mind, Jesus ignored the comment. Notice that Mark mentions no response at all. We can put the verse back up. They finish saying what they're going to say, and then crickets. Nothing else after that in the text. What we know is that Jesus continued to do the will of God, even when others thought poorly of him 
for doing the will of God. It had to be painful to know that his friends thought that he had lost his mind. It had to be difficult to know that his friends did not believe that he was the Messiah. But instead of being offended and lashing out at them, he ignored their concerns and unrighteous judgments. He did not even speak to them about it. He just continued to do the will of his father. Now, because of language, and it can be tricky, I want to make a clarification here. It's important to note that Jesus did not give them the silent treatment or the cold shoulder. That's not the same thing as ignoring their judgments. Jesus always operated in love. When I say that Jesus ignored them, what I'm saying is that he simply did not respond. We have no record of Jesus trying to explain himself to them or to get them to agree and to see that he was actually doing the will of the Father. He just continued to do God's will. That's how he responded to his friends who had these unjust judgments about him. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. Jesus challenged the unrighteous accusations of his enemies. And in that challenge, he created an opportunity for anyone who was listening to hear the truth if they wanted to hear it. Okay, and again, what you're going to notice here is Jesus does not try to convince his enemies and get them to agree with them, but he speaks the truth in love. He always speaks the truth in love. He speaks the truth in love to them, and he gives an opportunity for anyone who wants to know the truth to hear it. The enemies of Jesus had accused him of casting out demons by the power of demons. Casting out demons by the power of Satan. Called the Lord of the demons uh, in this story. That's what Beelzebub is. Their accusations were totally unfounded and slanderous. Jesus responded by challenging their reasoning in two different ways. His enemies who challenged him, he challenged their reasoning in two ways. First, he challenged them with logic. He showed them that their accusations actually didn't make any sense. He demonstrated that what they were accusing him of doing is not something they really believed that he would do, and it wasn't really something that they, that they would do themselves, that it wasn't logical. He used two analogies to demonstrate to this, this to them. He used the analogy of the kingdom, and he used an analogy of a family. Those are the two analogies that he used. And both arrived at the same conclusion. The idea that Satan would cast out Satan was not logical at all. These scribes were experts in the scripture. They knew the story of the Genesis account. And they knew that Satan's goal was to oppose God by destroying mankind. He has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Satan would not have given demons orders to possess a person to serve his evil purposes, only then to use his authority to set those same people free from his evil purposes. It just didn't make any logical sense. That would destroy his credibility, and it would divide his own kingdom, and if he was doing that, his kingdom would not stand. Jesus challenged his enemies with logic and revealed the truth to those who wanted to hear it. And what was that truth? Well, the truth was that the works that Jesus was doing was not done by the power of demons at all. The truth was that the works that Jesus was doing, that they were witnessing with their own eyes, were being done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the second way that Jesus challenged them. Jesus challenged these scribes with the law, which makes a lot of sense because they were experts with the law. So really, he met them right where they were. 
He knew what they knew, and he met them there with his response and his challenge. Jesus accused the scribes of committing blasphemy because of what they said about the source of his power. The scribes were saying that Jesus was using the power of demons, the power of Satan, to cast out demons. Clearly, Jesus was not casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So by saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, the scribes were attributing the good works of the Holy Spirit to the works of Satan. They were calling the good works that God was doing evil. And that's a form of blasphemy. Anytime a person attributes the work of God to the work of Satan, or anytime someone calls the works of God evil, they are committing the sin of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is a very serious sin in the law of Moses. In God's law for Israel, the punishment prescribed for blasphemy is death. There's actually some stories of that, like one story where Moses goes and someone commits blasphemy and he goes and asks God, what, what should we do? And God says, you need to stone him in front of the whole assembly. And there's like no second chance. There were no exceptions to that rule. The punishment for blasphemy in the law of Moses was death. In other words, there's no forgiveness of sin in the law of Moses for blasphemy. Jesus' words are very intense in this passage. He is very direct with the scribes about their blasphemy, and he tells them how serious their sin is to God. When we understand who Jesus is talking to and what they understood about the law of Moses, it's pretty easy for us to see and be clear about what Jesus is saying in this text. Jesus was telling the scribes that their accusations against him were blasphemy and that according to the law of Moses, they deserve to be put to death. Talk about a challenge. And he was right. That is, according to the law of Moses, what they deserved. Now, before I move on, I think it's important to note that this passage is not saying that the sin of blasphemy cannot be forgiven for born-again Christians. When I was a child, I remember hearing these verses, and I remember the verses creating fear in me. And the reason it created fear was because I was wondering if I had ever committed the sin of blasphemy. And I was worried about that because I thought that Jesus was saying that if I had committed this sin, that there was no possibility of forgiveness for me and that I would spend eternity in hell. I was confused because of my misunderstanding about the text. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is no sin that I could commit that cannot be forgiven by God. The forgiveness of my sins is not based on what I've done, has never been based on what I have done, will never be based on what I have done. It is based on the all-sufficient work of Christ and what he has done for me. If blasphemy was a sin that could not be forgiven by Jesus, then the apostle Paul would have never been able to be forgiven by God. Paul attributed the works of the Holy Spirit to the works of Satan when he went around persecuting and killing Christians for their faith in God before he himself was saved and born again. The persistent message of the New Testament is that all our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. When God saves us from our sin, he does not hold one sin to our account, and that includes the very serious sin of blasphemy. 
But if I'm going to share that truth, I think the other side of the same coin is very important to make clear. On the other hand, blasphemy is a very serious sin that will lead many people to eternal separation from God in hell. If a person continues to reject God and accuses God of doing evil or attributes the good works of God to Satan, they are committing blasphemy. And if they do not repent of their sin, humble themselves, and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, they will not be forgiven of that sin on the day of judgment. They will not be given a second chance to repent. So it's a very serious sin. And the blood of Jesus can cover even that sin. When the enemies of Jesus opposed Jesus with false accusations, Jesus responded by challenging them, challenging their reasoning with logic and with the law of God. But notice again that Jesus did not argue with them to try to win them over to his side. He responded, but he didn't argue with them. His goal was not, it wasn't success if they agreed. That's not how he was measuring success. In fact, Many of these religious leaders grew in their hatred towards Jesus because of what he said to them in this story. Jesus' goal was simply to give an opportunity for people to hear the truth if they wanted to hear it. And we know from various Bible stories that some rejected Jesus and opposed him strongly, but others experienced a softening of their heart and a turning to Jesus. One of those great examples is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. He was one of the religious leaders. And through his interactions with Jesus, we can see this softening in his heart towards the things that God was sharing through Jesus. So that's the second one, is Jesus' response to his family and how he challenged um, them and their unrighteous accusations. And so the third one and the last one is Jesus taught a lesson to his disciples through his response to his family. That's the last group. And we'll look at how Jesus responded to them. What he did was he taught them a lesson, taught his disciples a lesson through his response to his family. Jesus used his family's presence and their request of him as an opportunity to teach his disciples about the important truth of their relationship with him and their relationship with one another. The point of this story is not that we should ignore our biblical I'm sorry, not that we should ignore our biological families. That's not the point of the story. So don't, don't mess that point up and start thinking, oh, Jesus ignored his biological family, so I guess that that's how I should respond to my family. Jesus had other encounters with his mother and with his brothers beyond this point. God's word clearly communicates the importance of our biological families and our roles and our responsibilities in our biological families. There are actually major passages of scripture in the New Testament instructing Christians how to be the kind of father, mother, and child that God wants us to be. Now at the same time, the reality of sin and its effects on this world is that many biological families are broken. Many biological families are suffering or even estranged. Knowing this, Jesus looked around at those who were sitting at the table with him. He said, who's my mother? Who's my brother? And he said, right here, this is my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. No matter how broken our biological family is, if we are in Christ, we are the family of God. Jesus wants us to know that his family, the church, is greater than even blood family. 
And some of you, whoo, that's a hard one that you need to wrestle with. Not that blood family doesn't have its place and isn't a good thing in God's order and design, but Jesus is saying his family is even greater than blood family. In fact, the best thing we could do for our family is lead them to be part of his family. God wants us to see the people in his church, the people you're sitting around this morning, the people that you're in small group with when you gather. He wants you to see them as members of your own family. He wants us to relate to him and to one another like family. So Jesus responded to his family's presence by using it as an opportunity to teach his disciples the special kind of relationship he wanted them to share with him and with each other. So those are the three groups and Jesus' three responses. And so now here's three lessons from each one of these groups and Jesus' responses. And here's the first one. Church, don't be like the friends of Jesus. Don't be like the friends of Jesus who made unrighteous judgments towards their friend. These friends judged Jesus and his motives before they knew all the facts. The friends of Jesus judged him to be losing his mind before they had ever even spoken with Jesus. And apparently they had not spoken to his mother or to John the Baptist, people in his life who could have given a credible witness to what Jesus was doing. They had not searched the scriptures to see if the life of Jesus was fulfilling biblical prophecy. Their judgments were unrighteous, unfounded. And because of their unjust judgments, they not, did not believe in Jesus when they should have believed in him. And they did not have Jesus back when they should have had his back. They thought Jesus was wrong. He was not wrong. They were wrong. Do not be like the friends of Jesus. Withhold any judgment about anyone until you have done a thorough investigation. You know what I'm talking about in these responses, don't you? Those opinions that pop in your mind those emotions, those thoughts you have about someone else and you assume that you're right. You assume that you know why they did that. I know why they did that. I know what they're doing. And you make these assumptions. It's ungodly. It's evil when we do that. Don't be like these friends. Withhold any judgment about anyone until you've done a thorough investigation. And this investigation must include you speaking with them personally about your concerns and giving them an opportunity to tell you what is really going on. If you're the kind of person that cannot be slow to judgment, go meet with a therapist. Get transparent with your small group. Talk to somebody who can help you with this issue. You have something terribly wrong within you that is causing you to be a judgmental person. Do yourself and the people that you love a favor and go get help if you are the kind of person who makes unjust judgments towards other people. Don't be like the friends of Jesus. And hey, some of you are doing the will of God and you're taking flack for it. When you're serving Jesus and what happens to Jesus happens to you, and it will, just ignore the unrighteous judgments of others and keep doing what God has called you to do. 
Now that's different. I didn't say don't go get godly counsel from people you can trust. Go do that. But if there's people in your life making unjust judgments, unjust accusations towards you when you're doing the will of God, ignore them and keep doing what God has called you to do. The opinions of people who judge you like Jesus' friends judged him are not worth even one moment of your consideration. Do not allow their noise to distract you from the purpose that God has called you to fulfill. So that's the first lesson from the friends of Jesus. Don't make unrighteous judgments. The second lesson from the enemies of Jesus is pray for your family and friends who are blaspheming Jesus and the works of his Holy Spirit. We all know people who are doing this. Some people are very, very upfront about it, and you hear it in their language. They even say the words that are blasphemous towards God. Others are blaspheming God by the way that they live their life. The consequences of this sin cannot be measured. It is eternal. The punishment is being alive in an environment that is worse than any environment that we could possibly imagine here on earth. Can't you imagine some pretty bad environments here on earth? There's some pretty terrible places that you would not want to be. And the eternal consequence is even worse than that for people who are living in this sin and have not turned to Jesus and repented. The only hope for our loved ones who are blaspheming God is for them to humble themselves, repent of their sin, and turn to Jesus. And if you're one of those people in this room this morning, and you know your words or the way that you're living is blasphemous towards God and the Holy Spirit's making that clear to you, your only hope is to turn from that sin, go to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness of your sins. Pray that God would help you. And we all need to pray that God would help those in our lives that we know who are blaspheming God. And then the last lesson from the responses of Jesus to these groups of people is embrace the members of your church family as your eternal family, as your family that's going to last forever. What you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ surpasses anything that you will ever share with your biological family members. And I want to show you just a few of them. You share the same eternal father and you are his children. You share the same older brother and you share in his inheritance. You share the same Lord and you are united together as one holy race and citizens of his kingdom. You share the same spirit and you are temples of that Holy Spirit, both individually, but I want you to understand that you are a temple of God being built together as members, brick by brick, stone by stone, being built up into an acceptable place of worship for God. Look at Ephesians 2 and its language that it says in that. You share the same divine nature, and you are partakers of God's divine nature. You share the same mind, and you have the mind of Christ. You share the same mission, and you are called to make disciples of Jesus. Your family, your spiritual family, your eternal family has benefits that your biological family will never have. And these benefits are far greater than any of the benefits we can receive from our biological families. Jesus said that the world would know that we're his disciples by the love that we have for one another and by our unity as we walk in unison together. That love comes from knowing we are members of God's family because we all share these wonderful blessings together because we're all children of God. So those are our three lessons 
from these three. In our key passage from Mark 3 and these three groups, we saw three different groups of people who created opposition for Jesus. Jesus' response to these three different groups and three lessons from those responses. And here they are just quickly summarized for you. He ignored his friends who judged him unrighteously. He challenged his enemies who accused him unrighteously. And he taught a lesson through his response to his family. There is something that we can learn from each one of these ways that Jesus responded to these three different groups of people. And I bet if you paused for just a moment and you thought about it, one of these would even rise to the surface for you. Where you could look at this list and you could think, which one of these three do I need to learn from the most? Is it the way I'm responding to other people? Is it unrighteous judgments? Is it blasphemy in my own life that I need to repent of? Is it blasphemy in the lives of people I love and I need to be a witness to them and help lead them to Jesus? Is it that this is my family and that I need to be a family to my family? Which one of those three connects with you the most today with what you've recently been facing? We can learn something from each one of these three groups and the three responses of Jesus to each group. But the most important lesson that we could learn this morning is not a lesson from how Jesus responded differently to all three of these groups. The most important lesson that we could learn this morning is from how Jesus responded the exact same way to all three of these groups. And the way that Jesus responded the exact same way to all three of this, these groups is that he died on the cross for their sin because he loved them. The Bible says that no greater love has anyone than this, than he would lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus demonstrated the response that we should all aspire to, that we should all hold in high esteem when he laid down his life for these three different groups. It didn't matter if his friends were, if they were his friends, his enemies, or his family. Jesus laid down his life for them because he loved them. It didn't matter if they judged him unrighteously, if, he, if they made false accusations against him, even in public, or had conceit towards him in their hearts. Jesus died on the cross for all three of these groups. And the most significant response of Jesus towards these three groups of people is his response of love. And I want you to know this morning that if you're not sure about where you stand in your relationship with God, that no matter what you've done and no matter how you've treated him or others in the past, that the way that Jesus responded to these three groups of people is the exact same way that he responds to you. That while you were dead in your sins, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because he loves you. That's incredible love. That's an awesome response. And I tell you what, if this would characterize your responses moving forward, you'd have something going. We sang it earlier, more like you. You'd be a lot more like Jesus if this was your go-to response. Jesus knew a lot about how to work with different groups of people and these challenges. He was God in the flesh. And so the way he responded was, was based on that. But 
this response right here is just easy to see and exactly what all of us should aim at in our personal lives. And I want you to know this right now. If you're unsure where you stand in your relationship with God, let me tell you how you can know his love this morning. The Bible says that your sin has separated you from God. And the Bible teaches that there is no amount of good works that you can do to make yourself right with God again. To close that gap that sin has created between you and God. No amount of going to church, no amount of being baptized, no amount of meeting good Christian people, no amount of reading your Bible, no amount of praying, no amount of making the right choices could ever close the gap that sin has created between you and a just and holy God. And the Bible teaches that when you could not close that gap, that Jesus loved you enough, God loved you enough to send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did not have a gap between him and the Father. He had perfect unity between him and his Father. And he lived a perfect sinless life. And this is what the scripture says. Look right here at me. The scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That they nailed his hands and his feet to a tree. And they put a crown of thorn on his head. And they beat him and they mocked him and, he, and they whipped him. And he endured it all because it's a picture of what we deserve because of our sin. And he endured it all because the wrath of God had to be satisfied towards your sin and towards mine. And Jesus hung on that tree and he died for your sin. And the Bible said, he, says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That our relationship where we were separated from God, that God has made a way for us to be brought back together in close relationship with him and in close relationship with one another. What we could never do on our own was done for us in one mighty act, in one mighty work, in one great display of love, the greatest display of love that has ever happened that the world has ever known. And that's how Jesus responded to these three groups of people and to everyone else he encountered in his ministry. And that's how Jesus will respond to you. If you will turn from your sin, if you will look at Jesus and say, I don't deserve it, but I need it, God. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with you. I throw myself at your feet. Forgive me of my sin and make me right with you. And the Bible says... He will, because that's the kind of response Jesus has to sinners. So I urge you this morning, he's already responded to you in love. Just respond back to him. Just turn your heart to him in love. And he'll forgive your sins, and he'll give you a new life in him, and it won't be the same moving forward. You will be different. So this morning, what I'd like to do is create an opportunity for you to do that. And the first way I want to do that is I want to ask you if right where you're seated, if you would just close your eyes and bow your head, just so you can just focus on talking to God. And as you do that, I'm going to ask our response team to come forward, our pastors, elders, those leaders who are helping us this morning. Now, just right now in your heart, just ask the Lord how you need to respond to him in light of such great love.
And if you know that your sin has separated you from God, I just want to lead you right now in just telling the Lord, God, I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you. You can even just pray these words after me. It's not a prayer that saves us. It's a decision of our heart. It's this pledging of allegiance to our King Jesus. But you can just tell him right now, if this is your decision, just say, King Jesus, I have been wrong. And I am turning from my sin. Please forgive me. I am turning to you. You can be my Lord. You are my Lord. You are my King. And I will follow you. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What I'd like to do at this time is just give a very specific invitation. If you're making that decision right now to follow Jesus as your Lord, these leaders here in our church, pastors, their wives, small group leaders in our church, they are prepared to pray with you this morning if you are turning to God and surrendering your life to Him. So what I'd like to do is ask all of us if we would stand together at this time. And as we stand, we're going to sing a verse and a chorus. And during this verse and chorus, here is the specific invitation. Are you guilty of blaspheming God? Maybe you've been outspoken about it. Maybe it's just through the way you live and you know, I have lived in such an evil way and rejected the Lordship of Jesus in my life. If that is you, Jesus' response to you is love. He died on the cross to save you from your sin, and he rose again so that his life could come and dwell in you. So during this first part of our invitation, as we sing this verse in this chorus, if God is showing you that you need his forgiveness of sin, and you know it, I want to ask you to move from where you are right now and to come up here and to talk to someone who is ready to pray with you and to help you in your response to Jesus. So would you do that right now? Pastor Seth, lead us in this verse, in this course, and you respond to Jesus if he is calling you.